most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's healthcare and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to another edition of Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. Medical care is more than just about making the right diagnosis and getting the right treatment. It's about broader aspects, and this show is about the broader aspects of medicine. We explore the different viewpoints of the many people involved in the healthcare system. For example, in last week's show on the um, new guidelines related to breast cancer, we discussed with an oncologist his view that people should be screened. And one might wonder, well, why would anybody think otherwise? Well, from the oncologist's perspective, they're seeing regularly the patients who have a problem. The family doctors see the patients who have a problem, but they also see all the patients who have false positive results. They might have a different perspective. People who sit in different places in the healthcare system have different perspectives, and it really makes for complex, rich interactions. And those are the kinds of issues we discuss on Getting Better Healthcare. On today's show, we discuss complex medical, um, com- the complex relationships between physicians and their patients. We discuss not just the disease, but the impact of disease on patients' lives. And we're going to discuss the cost of medical care. We're going to do that with Dr. Richard Freed. He has a PhD in psychology and is a dermatologist. He's the clinical director of Yardley Dermatology Associates in Yardley, Pennsylvania, He's on the executive board of the American Acne and Rosacea Society, and he's immediate past president of the Association of Psychocutaneous Medicine of North America. He recently was involved with a patient self-reported study of the impact of Botox on patients' lives. Rick has some fascinating insights to share with us. Rick, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You have a very interesting practice. You combine... Uh, medical and cosmetic dermatology. We do, yes. Now, um, you're also trained in psychiatry. Uh, clinical psychology, yeah. PhD in clinical psych. PhD in clinical psychology. Now, is that a big part of your practice? You know, the majority of our practice, probably 75 to 80%, is traditional dermatology and dermatologic surgery. Um, psychocutaneous medicine or psychodermatology is about 20% in its various forms. I was hoping you were going to say that 100% of my practice involves the things I've learned in psychology. You know, I was just about to round that corner and say that I think 100% of every dermatologist's practice, to one degree or another, involves the practice of psychodermatology. I think it becomes a definitional one in terms of how formal or informally we introduce it into our interactions with patients. I went to Duke and, and, and got my MD and PhD degrees, and I was, you know, very into the science and protein chemistry. And when I was finished medical school, I thought, you know, I'm going to be really good at this. I'm going to make the right diagnoses for patients, and I'm going to give them the right treatment. And then I discovered that 
medicine involves a whole lot more psychology than I ever thought it did. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think in every interaction we have, whether it is the initial formulation of a diagnosis, whether it's treatment planning, the psychological factors play such a prominent role, um, helping to convey the information in a meaningful way to patients, helping to come up with a treatment plan that's acceptable to them. And, you know, some of it is based on objective criteria that we can quantify, and so much of it beyond that is based on our gut sense of where that patient is at any given time in their emotional world. I was um, almost disheartened. Um, one of my um, sons took the ACT test, and on the back of the results, there was a chart for the world of work, and it divided up the world of work into people who like to work with things, people who like to work with people, people who like to work with ideas. And it put the doctors smack dab in the middle of people who like to work with ideas and nowhere near the section for people who like to work with people. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I think that's something that as the years go by in medicine, um, most of us at the front line begin to realize that the people skills perhaps are more difficult to acquire and to, and to master if we ever do than the concrete material. So when you look at that concrete material, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll assume for the moment that we're making the right diagnosis and we're giving patients the right treatment. What are the, some of the big psychological day-to-day issues doctors face in taking care of patients? You know, I think one of the, the initial things is establishing that rapport, um, establishing that connection with the patient that allows everything to move forward. Now, whether we want to call it patient comfort, patient satisfaction, whether we want to call it relationship, um, how do we do that? Um, we can often in dermatology, as you know, from across the room pretty much make the diagnosis. But that's not going to make a patient very satisfied with two seconds into it saying, Mrs. Jones, you have psoriasis. We're going to give you the following creams. Have a nice day. Um, I hope you're satisfied with my care. Um, I think what people need, um, they need a sense that we're there in the moment with them, if if you will, Um, a sense that we're truly giving them, and them in quotes, meaning their skin and their emotional world, our full, our complete attention. And that can be as basic as do we at any point make or maintain eye contact? Um, Do we get a full body posture? Um, Are we half looking over our shoulder or are we face-to-face, full body facing them? Um, Do they have a sense that there's any compassion or empathy, um, that we really care about them at that moment? Whether it's a a nod as they're conveying information to us, an affirmative or maybe a validating statement saying, oh, yes, I understand, or gosh, that must be difficult. Um, the pace of our speech, are we in a hurry? As it, and, and are we cutting them off constantly? Or is there a relaxed nature in our speech? Not that we don't help people along in getting to important detail, but do we seem impatient with them? Um, in dermatology, again, um, often we've got it pretty quick if perhaps they have shingles. But I think it's helpful to them if they feel that we're really detail-oriented. Do we look closely at the rash? 
And do we lean forward? Do we seem to take a moment and pause? Other statements. Um, one of the things that patients are told all the time is, you know, your doctor might not be up to date. They might not be on top of all the details. So I believe making a reference to a recent conference that we were just at where they were talking about new and developing trends, a reference to a journal article we just read, that gives the patient a sense that we're really cutting edge and up to date. And last but not least, I think our openness to what is brought to us. When a patient comes in and says, gosh, you know, I Googled this rash or I read on the internet, um, a dismissive statement on the part of the physician, oh, that's nonsense, really is a very alienating kind of dismissal. Whereas putting a handout, taking the information and say, gee, I'm glad you brought this in. And if it is, in fact, correct, saying to the patient, you know, nice work. If it's not correct, saying to them, you know, I can certainly understand how this looks so much like what you've got on your arm today, but this is why it's not. So I think all of these kind of things culminate in that initial connection that allows the patient to feel that they're in skilled, capable, or, or caring hands. And at that point, we can move forward. Now, so much of this has nothing to do in the conventional sense of looking at the so-called uh, objective morphology of the rash, as we love to say. But I think it has everything to do with alleviating anxiety and gaining trust. Now, I'm going to ask you, a, I think, a very difficult question. Um, it's, it would be very easy for you and I to have this conversation and speak to doctors and say, listen, doctors, here are the things you need to do to improve your patient satisfaction. And, and, and I just want to acknowledge what you're saying is completely true. When you look at the patient satisfaction scores that come in at the doctorscore.com uh, uh, patient satisfaction website, the, the things, the, the comments that people make about their doctors that, that tell that whether that they feel the doctor is good or bad or the things they'd like to see improved, probably 80% of them relate to the doctor's communication skills. Either they're like, oh, this doctor spends time with me and really listens, or they're angry, this doctor spent no time with me and didn't listen. It would be easy for us to tell doctors this and, and to try to get doctors to change. Well, I don't know if it would be easy to get them to change or to pay attention to this, but I think they're interested and hungry for this. But what can we tell the public? What can we tell lay people when they're in the doctor's office and they don't feel like they're getting that, when they feel like they're, they're getting a cursory examination? And let's say it's from a dermatologist. Let's say the dermatologist has made the right diagnosis and they did it really quick, but the patient still feels something's missing. Are there things the patients can do at that point that, that won't engender uh, a negative response from the physician to better get the kind of health care they're looking for? That's a great question. Um, one of the mantras that I've embraced over the years is compassionate, competent, and timely care. Now, timely is a very important word because all of us need time. Patients absolutely need time from their physician so they can be adequately cared for and educated. All our patients need time. So one of the things that we are faced with in every encounter with a patient 
he is balancing the time that Mrs. Jones needs, balancing the time that Mr. Smith needs, balancing the time that we need to do our job. So ultimately, I believe everybody involved in the equation has to compromise a little bit. In the ideal world, we'd all be, for those of us old enough to remember Marcus Welby, where we could spend half the day with him. But the truth is that would withhold care from so many other patients who need it. So if a patient is feeling that they're not getting the level of interest and time, I think in a non-confrontational way, as it would be within a marriage, non-confrontational, because if we get confrontational in any relationship, we tend to get anger back. So in a non-confrontational way, saying, Doctor, are you sure that you really have all the information you need? Or, Doctor, I feel like you're not 100% um, with me at the moment. And if it's said in a way that is a true and honest exchange of feelings, you can expect the same thing back. And hopefully you'll get, you know, I know it seems that way, Steve, but this is a rash I see hundreds of times a week. I'm certain about the diagnosis. And I don't want you to have any anxiety about that. So I, I do think sharing that experience and, and the emotional experience is important, but in a non-confrontational way. You know, in, in your book, Compartments, you, you so eloquently put forth that idea that all of us experience our world from our own compartments, from our own perspective and our previous experiences. So if a patient has had good experiences with doctors in the past, and they've uh, felt positively cared for, I think that's what they'll expect and they'll have that good experience unless it's a doc who's really not great. Conversely, if they've been frustrated, if their skin has not gotten better, if they feel extremely fearful, if they've had bad experiences, these are the people who are going to feel slighted and feel even suspect. So if that can be shared in a non-hospital way, often very quickly things can move forward into an even better uh, collaborative effort on the part of the patient and the doctor. You know, I, I have a feeling, speaking to a psychologist, that, that you're going to see right through my projections of my own personal fears. But I just have this sense that when people attempt a non-confrontational um, uh, approach to their doctor, that that doctor who is already hurried and under so many other stresses, is going to feel uh, under attack. Even you, when you say to the doctor, gee, are you sure that, that you know, the doctor is going to feel like they're being questioned? And, and, and I wonder if you have to, if, if the patients, I mean, it's, it's a shame that you would think that the doctors would be that way, but I just have the feeling like the doctor might respond even better to something along the lines of, Oh, doctor, I appreciate what you just said, and I appreciate the, the, you know, how efficient you are at this and your, uh, you know, the, the, the experience you have. Um, tell me, is it possible, have we ruled out all the other, the other possibilities here? Okay. Something, something very positive to the doctor up front to get them feeling like that the patient is on their side, too. So what you're really saying is doctors need to be stroked and cared for, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think there's, there's so much truth to that, because one of the things that I see more and more unfolding is a sense that doctors are feeling under attack, a sense that so much of the information that's out there 
put seeds in patients' minds that your doctor may not be up to date, your doctor may be in cahoots with this pharmaceutical or in cahoots with this one. And I do think doctors are feeling increasingly attacked. And one of the concerns that I have, and I'm, I'm going to segue a bit, a bit but come back, um, I do look at the doctor-patient relationship as an incredibly important and often intimate one that is very much like a friendship or a marriage. And I think when someone in a relationship feels frequently and viciously attacked, the human tendency, the protective tendency in our personalities is to withdraw, is to protect ourselves with some degree of armor, or even to attack back when we feel attacked. So I have some concern that many doctors are finding it difficult to care, difficult to provide compassionate care because they're so concerned that they're going to be attacked by a patient. So I think you're very much correct that, as my mother used to say, it's not what you say, but how you say it. And that is that I do think gently approaching the subject probably will work best for both. So do we need to be stroked and be said, gee, big, strong girl, big, strong guy, you're so wonderful? Not quite in that way. But I, I, I like your position of saying that there is a complimentary statement or at least a validating statement that, yeah, this is a person who spent 12 or 16 years after high school trying to master their, their profession and their art, and that mutual respect is important. Yes, it, it just seems like there's so much opportunity for building teamwork that it, and, 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 and getting um, both sides of this equation uh, to communicate better with each other and to recognize each other's needs. It's, it's not just, you know, we, we talk to physicians and, and, and get them to, to pay more attention to their pain. I think they're paying plenty of attention, but like you say, gosh, I, I love this concept where, you know, I can really look up to date to my patient by just, you know, mentioning a recent study related to their disease. That's just... That's really cool. And at the same time, I think there's the, the patients can play a similar role, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's um, a concept I talked about a long time ago called the therapeutic waltz. And there's absolutely a dance, if you will, that happens between doctor and patient. And, you know, moving from the time they cross the door, entering to the time they cross the threshold, leaving, it is a dance. And hopefully we are in step with one another moving to the mutual goal of making an appropriate diagnosis and providing a treatment plan that is mutually acceptable and effective. But it's not an easy dance. And, but I do think as the years go by, um, as doctors become more and more psychodermatologists and own up to it, we're all psychodermatologists. We're all responding emotionally to our emotions, to our patients' emotions. We're all reacting. When someone comes in and says, I've got psoriasis, and, you know, I don't know if you understand this, Doc, but it's really taken over a big part of my life. And many patients with psoriasis, as you know better than virtually everybody in the country, um, they very insidiously, very gradually give up so many of their recreational activities, and, and often it's without their awareness until they get pretty far down the path. Um, we remember the science experiment in high school where it could take a frog, 
throw them into a pot of boiling water, the frog will jump right out. However, if we take that same frog, leave them in a pot, increase the temperature of the water one degree or an hour, by the end of 12, 14, 20 hours, that frog will stay in there and boil to death with no recognition that that water was getting hotter. In the same slow change, we find that people with skin disease gradually withdraw from people, places, and things that give them pleasure. And often that psoriasis patient walking into us that says, this has really come to own so much of my life, they have an aha moment when they realize they're not bowling, they're not going to the beach, they're not going to the pool, they're not going to so many of the other places. And insidiously, they've lost or given up so much. And what they want to hear from us at that moment is, you know, I really do understand this disease. I do understand how difficult this is, and I want to give you your life back. So that's what they deserve to hear from us, and that is what we want to do. I think you've brought up uh, an enormously important point, and I think it's not just cosmetic dermatology. It's not psoriasis. It's not limited to management of skin disease, I think there there's probably should be some recognition that when people come to the doctor, they're not coming to the doctor because they have a disease or a condition. They're coming to the doctor because something about their condition bothers them. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And when you look at the data on psoriasis, rosacea, acne, eczema, hair loss, hives, um, every one of these conditions... Um, are associated with very significant emotional impact, significant levels of anxiety, depression, often feelings of hopelessness and futility. So, yeah, these are things that dramatically, dramatically impact on people's ability to function, ability to be happy and connected. Conversely, um, effective treatment has been shown to give back all of the above. And, you know, recognizing that it is a two-way street that skin disease causes misery, um, and misery can cause worsening of skin disease. Recognizing there is that two-way interaction, again, that really calls upon us to at least be intellectual psychodermatologists recognizing the two-way street, and hopefully interventional psychodermatologists in addressing those emotional factors. And I realize that's a vague statement. And my guess is you're going to ask me, uh, to what extent should we be addressing? And um, I'm not advocating that your dermatologist should have a nice Freudian couch on the side of the room where you lay down and talk about your childhood stresses and your childhood conflicts. I am advocating that um, everything from that caring or compassionate uh, word, moving down the continuum to introducing stress management techniques, perhaps progressive muscle relaxation, yoga, tai chi, hypnosis, perhaps when appropriate, psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, perhaps when appropriate, using um, psychoactive or psychotropic medicines. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman, and we're talking today with dermatologist Dr. Rick Fried from Yardley, Pennsylvania. Now, Rick, one of the things that I find intriguing, um, if, if we accept that the reason people are coming into the doctor uh, is because they have something that bothers them, and if we accept that our role as physicians is to fix what bothers the patient, it, it makes me wonder 
Where is the line between taking care of people's medical problems and taking care of the cosmetic issues that they bring to us? It seems that the cosmetic issues bother the patients maybe many times more than what are traditionally thought of as the medical issues. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I had a woman come in about three months ago in her late 70s with literally a laundry list of very serious medical problems. She had congestive heart failure. She had rheumatoid arthritis to the point where she was wheelchair-bound. She had had several primary cancers. The list just goes on and on and on. And the reason she came in was she was very distressed about the angry, angry expression that she frequently had on her face. And the story unfolded that with her own daughter, who was in her mid-40s, she was in a local supermarket, and her daughter was pushing her wheelchair. Walking toward her was a young mother and what was probably a four- or five-year-old little boy with a young mother. The four- or five-year-old little boy pointed at this woman in the wheelchair hugged on his own mother's sleeve and said, Mommy, Mommy, why is that lady so mean? And she had this very deep crease or furrow in the middle of the forehead. And this led the mother to talk to this older woman about the unintended expression of emotions. And she and this older woman was the gentlest, sweetest woman mm. you could ever meet. But because she had that deep crease, other people perceived her as just being mean and judgmental and angry. So for her, above all her other medical problems, she was most distressed with looking in the mirror and just looking so angry. And what she came in for was Botox. And we discussed it with her, gave her Botox, and she was just delighted. So... I I do think that the cosmetic interventions, particularly the ones that are well-chosen and not those that are extreme and alter identity, these well-chosen cosmetic interventions can dramatically change the way people feel and the way they function. And, you know, prior to this visit, going back about two years ago, in our center here, and as been the case for many dermatologists across the country, there's been a recognition that, you know, when you get rid of people's brown spots or when you help to get rid of some of the unwanted little facial vessels that people with rosacea often have or clear psoriasis that's in visible areas, that people have dramatic improvements in their emotional world. So we developed a self-reported questionnaire, just 30 questions with regard to how people after Botox treatment felt. And it's simply was a questionnaire that said, since my Botox treatment, I find that I am. And it was a more than, less than type of feedback questionnaire. More depressed, less depressed, the same. More confident, less confident, the same. And we called through many of the quality of life questionnaires and said, you know, what are the things that seem to be most interesting in terms of how people interact in their day-to-day world? And had um, 70 patients come through the centers And basically, there were some very, very interesting things. A month after the Botox treatment, we had 83% of people telling us they felt more attractive, 59% of people saying they felt more confident, 50% less stressed, 49% said they were happier, 49% said they were more optimistic in general, 36% more uh, more relaxed, 
Um, 33% more comfortable with others. Um, frankly, even 26% said they were more sexually confident. So certainly the Botox was given in the forehead, not somewhere beneath the waist. So yeah. my, my question is, what happened? And I think the answer is we can't help but be affected by what we see in the mirror. And when we approach the mirror every day, whether it's in the bathroom in the morning or in a changing room, we can't help but have a cognitive and emotional interpretation of what we see in the mirror. And if we look angry and stressed and distressed and bothered, we can't help but at a physical and emotional level say things are pretty crummy. Conversely, when we look in the mirror and say, you know, not only do I look pretty good, but I sure look a whole lot better than I did just a couple of weeks ago, there's a tremendous optimism that goes with that. Now, from an aging point of view, what every one of us face from the time we are moving through our 20s is that little voice in the background that says, you know, I ain't what I used to be. And the response after that isn't worse than that. It's only downhill from here. Yeah, I, I have those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We all do. And, you know, when we do something, whether it's a filler, whether it's Botox, whether it's getting rid of our little age spots, our little warty growth, the seborrheic Or even my joint pains. Mm -hmm. Yep. We can actually say, you know, not only is it not worse than it was a couple of months ago, but it's better. And I think there's a tremendous optimism when we're able to answer that it's not all downhill and deterioration from here. And with further questioning, what we found, as I think most dermatologists do with questioning, that it carries over into other areas. People's self-care often gets better. They eat better. They exercise better. Perhaps they're going out more. Um, so it's not just simple, frivolous, superficial interventions. And, you know, when does something become a medical intervention versus a cosmetic intervention? And I think that line is solely arbitrary. You've got a big scaly plaque of psoriasis or eczema for all the world to see on your wrist. And that is cleared. I think that's a terrific cosmetic intervention. So we're not just talking about the... the traditional cosmetic interventions that we think of as, you know, what these stars are getting. I think very much of what we do in dermatology is a cosmetic intervention. And just as you alluded to, um, I think what happens in general medicine, maybe it's not under the general rubric of, of cosmetic, but it sure as heck is life improving and quality of life improving. One of the aspects of this that I find very interesting is how within, say, the specialty of dermatology, you have some dermatologists maybe who never learned to do cosmetic procedures. They're happy being medical dermatologists. And then you have other dermatologists who do varying degrees of cosmetic work. And, 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 and within the academic world, maybe in particular, or maybe even more generally, those medically-oriented dermatologists will denigrate what the cosmetic dermatologists are doing as not being medicine, not being medical, um, maybe that they care more about money than patients. And yet, what the cosmetic dermatologists are doing, as clearly as you describe it, are making a huge impact on patients' lives, perhaps maybe even bigger impact than somebody who clears up the psoriasis in some patients. I think if we're lucky enough in our professional lives we can gravitate to 
toward the things within our profession where we feel we have the greatest passion and the greatest competence. Nancy Reagan, if for those of us who remember the Reagan administration, her anti-drug campaign, had a wonderful slogan that I believe all of us who dabble or who are pure in cosmetic interventions should embrace, and that is just say no. When we're making decisions on a patient's behalf, whether it's deciding on the appropriate treatment for a patient with psoriasis or lymphoma, or making the appropriate decision for a patient with a cosmetic interest, it should be what is in their best interest, what we believe will be the treatment that gives them the most satisfaction with the best and safest profile. So when we start making decisions based on our monetary gain, start making decisions based on building our reputation, whether it's medical or cosmetic, then we don't belong in the front line. But on the other hand, just as you said, if we are making those decisions ethically, correctly, and morally, then absolutely, I think we can affect wonderful change using cosmetic intervention. Do I personally, and this is a very personal bias, and I want that out front, do I personally think it's great to have the blend and not be purely cosmetic? For someone like me and for many dermatologists, I think so because never relinquishing your commitment as a medical surgical dermatologist that is treating primary skin disease, I think it allows us to never be in a position where we need the patient. And perhaps as economies change and other factors in the world change, if we've relinquished that initial um, hat as medical surgical, we, I believe, could run the risk of needing a patient. And once we need a patient, our decision-making I think can be jeopardized. Rick, you've taken us into an area that's important and timely, and that's the, the cost of the medical care. We're facing the possibility of major changes in our healthcare system because the costs of our healthcare system have become, I think there's universally a, universal agreement on this, completely untenable. We just can't support it. That where it is or, and where it seems to be going, where, where these costs are going, and that some changes need to be made. Now, when you're describing how the doctor should be um, uh, making decisions for the patient, you're, you want, you're talking about making decisions that are in the patient's best interest, mm -hmm. and you clearly didn't seem to be including cost in that, that equation, and you certainly made clear that you find it abhorrent if the doctor is making the decision based on their own financial motivations. So where do you see the high cost of medical care coming from? And, and if the things that you see, that a, a path towards addressing it? That's a great question. Um, I think there's many facets to this. And I'm reminded of something I heard about four months ago. The head of breast cancer treatment at Memorial Sloan Kettering in Manhattan made a statement in regard to health care. And he said he wants what all physicians he knows want, and that is affordable health care for all Americans and quality health care for all Americans. And I cannot endorse any more succinctly what I believe we all want. 
Do yes. we have a responsibility as physicians in addition to that to be cost-conscious? I think we do. And perhaps that is something we have not been educated enough about in our medical training and professional training else beyond our medical school. Um, there are so many things, I believe, that are contributing to the cost of, of escalating care. First of all, um, a couple of the things that come to mind. Um, first is something I, I, I call labanitis. And labanitis is, is, is my silly expression for this ubiquitous belief that if you run enough tests, that it's going to protect you from any possible illness coming down the line and will catch the earliest manifestation of an illness, so therefore you can be cured and avert uh, illness and death. So I think patients are lining up, and often physicians are joining with this enthusiasm that we're going to test you from here to Chicago and back and give you every possible test on the planet. And this is enormously costly, sometimes with totally good intent, but in our medical legal climate, sometimes fueled by the physician's anxiety that if I don't do every possible test, it could come back to haunt me or bite me in the future. So I think that one of the first things is the over-testing. Do you see that in your own practice, or is that something that you just assume other people are doing? I see it in my practice with patients coming in and requesting um, a test over and over and over, even though um, we've tested them for lupus and they come back two months later saying, I sure couldn't have changed by now, and again they huh. want to be tested for lupus. And certainly I hear it from physicians and patients lecturing across the country. All right. Um, I think that other things, um, there's a saying I once heard that says, um, don't just do something, stand there. And I think patients often expect action from us. They don't want conservative, expectant waiting or observation. They want some kind of test done to confirm. So often, if we'll look at something and say, look, I'm really not very impressed with this rash, why don't we take a look at it in six weeks or perhaps a couple of months? And a patient looks at us with big, wide eyes and says, but how do you know for sure? And at that point, we can either take a stance and say, well, you know, I'm 99% sure, and that just might not be good enough for the patient. Mm -hmm. So I think more, um, more and more we're feeling cornered, if you will, and being pushed into doing something rather than being um, more observing and, and saying, you know, what, what can happen next? I think something that you write very extensively about is adherence or compliance. Um, very often, I think that we look at a patient, we write our prescriptions, and we say, this is good for you, Mr. Jones. We'll see you back in three months. And three months later, they come back in without a tiny bit of improvement. And I, my hope is that you do your own podcast on this whole issue of some of the incredible studies you've done, showing that people very often minimally use their medications or not at all, even though they tell us with wide-eyed assurance that they have so often people have many more visits than they might otherwise need because they don't use their medications enough or at all, and they don't see improvement. So by the time we get them on a regimen that is comfortable for everybody involved, we've wasted two, three visits. And if you do the math times thousands or millions of people, the health care dollars spent there can be enormous. 
certainly the malpractice environment we're living in right now, the extent of litigation at every level um, is escalating our health care costs. And that's something that I believe most of the public and most physicians feel we've got to do something to reel in um, the, the frivolous lawsuits. We've got to do something to reel in the um, necessary or inevitable over-testing and over-imaging that, that can come from that. You know, I, you, I understand you live in an area, Pennsylvania, where that's a, an enormous problem. Does it really change the cost of what you deliver to patients? Well, I'm going to give the, the, the standard cop-out that the majority of us would give, and that is I, I want to believe when I look in the mirror that I do practice the kind of medicine that says, what would I do if this were my family member I cared about? And I think most of us as physicians, to one degree or another, do operate that way within each exam room. And hopefully we will not over or under test or over or under um, treat. But I do believe there is that competing force that says, I value my, le my medical license, and I, I don't want to do anything that's going to leave me and my practice um, vulnerable. So it is a struggle for, for, for most frontline clinicians. Um, do I believe basically the Scarlett O'Hara? Uh, I believe in the kindness of strangers, and if you do the right thing, life will probably turn out okay. I do. And I think once we allow ourselves to deviate from that and start to become cynical, we don't become uh, effective clinicians. I guess what I'm thinking is that the, the malpractice attorneys would say that, look, you're doing the if you're doing the test to protect yourself from a suit, you're basically doing it because you might be missing something if you don't do it. And so if there's no chance that you would miss something, well, then you don't save anything by, you know, you don't protect yourself in any way doing this extra test. So really, the fear of malpractice is driving physicians to give patients better testing, um, more testing, testing to rule out rare possibilities, and if you, and, and that the alternative is, well, we're not going to do the testing you because, well, it's not cost effective. It's, you know, see, we may let you die because it would cost too much to do otherwise. You know, there's sound logic in that with one accept, and the accept is that many of these tests have some degree of risk whether it be infection, whether it be scar, whether it be nerve damage, if we're talking about biopsies, we have the risk of false positives. If it is a uh, blood test or an imaging test, and what happens if we get a false positive and go on and deliver a, a treatment to a patient when, in fact, they don't have the disease that we thought they did and they have some minor side effect or, worse than that, major side effect, as in permanent damage or death, then it's not so harmless to over-test over and over-treat. And I, I think the recent controversy with mammography is a perfect example. Um, so it's not necessarily always in the patient's best interest to over-test and to over-treat. Well, Rick, I think our time is coming close to an end. I'm going to have to have you back on to discuss psychoactive medications, medicines for depression and anxiety. 
uh, at another time. Before I let you go, um, let me ask you, can you give our listeners two or three tips uh, on how to get better health care, whether it's an individual level or a system level, but things you think people should be out there and doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think when it comes to seeking out a health care provider, it's somewhat of a blind item. If we're lucky enough to have a uh, primary care doctor we have a relationship with, then I think asking her or him for a recommendation we need a specialist is helpful. I think if we're looking for a primary care doc, asking family members who have had good experiences is helpful. I think personal responsibility. Um, personal responsibility that says, I am not someone who can walk into a physician's practice and put my arms up and say, fix me. I think that collaborative effort that says, Doc, I'm asking you to do your part, to care about me, to be interested in me, to provide good care, but I'm equally willing to do my part. And my part is to follow through on the recommendations that you ask me to perform, whether it's taking a medication, whether it's using a topical cream, whether it's starting to exercise. I think embracing some degree of stress management in our own lives, whether it is simple square box breathing where you take uh, the breath cycle, inhaling for two or three seconds, holding it for two or three, letting it go for two or three, pausing for two or three, whether it's one of the many other things we can do. Because if we help to manage our stress, our health is better overall. We interact better and more effectively with other people. Um, I think also the recognition that mind and body and skin are not three separate continents make us do much better. Recognizing that what happens in our mind profoundly affects our skin. And how will that help us to make better health care choices and get better health care? Well, I want to talk about a blush as we close. For those of us who don't believe that what happens in our heads affects our skin and our body, I just want to ask us to ask ourselves the question, you know, what the heck is a blush? Well, a blush is the majority of the blood vessels in our skin opening suddenly all at once, widely, making us get hot making us turn bright red, all because of only one thing, and that's a thought. And the thought said, gee, I just made a fool of myself, and bingo, instantaneously, skin dramatically changes. So what we think and what we tell ourselves drastically determines how our physiology responds. So when we walk into that physician's office, when we look at that physician, asking ourselves, how do we want this interaction to play out? And just as you said, by taking a deep breath, by initiating the interaction in a warm, initiating the interaction in a hopeful fashion, and hoping that our physician will respond in kind, and hopefully they will have the exact same approach to us, then we can begin a helpful collaboration that can really move forward to get us optimal control over those things that we're concerned about with our skin and our bodies. Rick Fried, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Feldman, Steve Feldman, thanks for the pleasure. 
I envy my friend and colleague, uh, Rick Fried, as a psychologist and a dermatologist. He has a really great understanding and appreciation for the importance of psychology in medical relationships. Medicine, as I said at the beginning of the show, is not just about making the right diagnosis and about making the right treatment. It's about a relationship between patients and their doctor and a whole host of other people who are involved in the medical system. But at the heart, we all recognize, is that critical physician-patient relationship. And I just want to give people some advice about that. If you have a doctor and you're not entirely satisfied with the relationship you have with the doctor, don't give up right away. Doctors are deeply committed to giving their patients great medical care. And I don't just mean the right diagnosis and the right treatment. They want to give doctors a great medical experience. Uh, Rick and I discussed some of the practical things you could do. But remember, your doctor is a person too. And keep that in mind in your interactions with them. Treat others as you would want to be treated. I think that's good advice for doctors and for their patients. Well, that's it for today's program. I want to thank you for joining us. I'm Steve Feldman, and this is Getting Better Healthcare. I hope you'll join us next week. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit drscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. And we'll see you back here next week. 